0: section 10 of the spell of egypt this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the spell of egypt by robert smythe hitchins chapter 9 colossi of memnon nevertheless sometimes one likes to escape from the thing one loves and there are hours when the gay voices of luxor fatigue the ears when one desires a great calm Then there are silent voices that summon one across the river, when the dawn is breaking over the hills of the Arabian desert, or when the sun is declining toward the Libyan mountains, voices issuing from lips of stone, from the twilight of sanctuaries, from the depths of rock-hewn tombs. The peace of the plain of Thebes in the early morning is very rare and very exquisite. It is not the peace of the desert, but rather, perhaps, the peace of the prairie an atmosphere tender, delicately thrilling, softly bright, hopeful in its gleaming calm. Often and often have I left the Luya very early, moored against the long sand islet that faces Luxor when the Nile has not subsided. I have rowed across the quiet water that divided me from the western bank, and, with a happy heart, I have entered into the lovely peace of the great spaces that stretch from the Colossi of Memnon to the Nile to the mountains, southward towards Armand, northwards to Carrickton, to Danfic, to Guzzeret Matira. Think of the color of young clover, of young barley, of young wheat. Think of the timber of the reed flute's voice, thin, clear, and frail, with the frailty of dew-drops. Think of the torrents of spring rushing through the veins of a great wide land, and growing almost still at last on their journey spring, you will say, perhaps, and high Nile not yet subsided. But Egypt is the favored land of a spring that is already alert at the end of November, and in December is pushing forth its green. The Nile has sunk away from the feet of the Colossi that it has bathed through many days. It has freed the plain to the Fellaheen, though still it keeps my island in its clasp. And Happy, or Camra, the great extender, and Ra have made this wonderful spring to bloom on the dark earth before the Christian's Christmas. What a pastoral it is, this plain of Thebes, in the dawn of day! Think of the reed-flute, I have said, not because you will hear it as you ride towards the mountains, but because its voice would be utterly in place here, in this Arcady of Egypt, playing no Tarantella, but one of those songs, half bird-like and half sadly, mysteriously human which come from the soul of the east. Instead of it you may catch distant cries from the bank of the river, where the Shaduf man toils, lifting ever the water, and his voice, the one to the earth, the other, it seems, to the sky, and the creaking lay of the water-wheel, which pervades Upper Egypt like an atmosphere, and which, though perhaps at first it irritates, at last seems to you the sound of the soul of the river, of the sunshine and the soil. Much of the land looks painted, so flat is it, so young are the growing crops, that they are like a coating of green paint spread over a mighty canvas. But the Dura rises higher than the heads of the naked children who stand among it to watch you canter past. And in the far distance you see dim groups of trees, sycamores and acacias, tamarisks and palms. Beyond them is the very heart of this land of sand and ruins and gold. Medinet Abu, the Ramesseum, Deir el medinet Kurna, Deir el bahari the tombs of the kings, the tombs of the queens, and of the princes. In the strip of bare land at the foot of those hard and yet poetic mountains have been dug up treasures the fame of which has gone to the ends of the world. But this plain, where the fellahin are stooping to the soil, and the women are carrying the water-jars, and the children are playing in the Dura, and the oxen and the camels are working with ploughs that look like relics of far-off days, is the possession of the two great presiding beings, whom you see from an enormous distance, the colossi of Memnon. Amenhotep the Third put them where they are, so we are told, but in this early morning it is not possible to think of them as being brought to any place. Seated, the one beside the other, facing the Nile and the home of the rising sun. Their immense aspect of patience suggests will, calmly, steadily exercised, suggests choice, that for some reason, as yet unknown, they choose to come to this plain, that they choose solemnly to remain there, waiting, while the harvests grow and are gathered about their feet, while the Nile rises and subsides, while the years and the generations come like the harvests, and are stored away in the granaries of the past. Their calm broods over this plain, gives to it a personal atmosphere which sets it quite apart from every other flat space of the world. There is no place that I know on the earth which has the peculiar, bright, ineffable calm of the plain of these colossi. It takes you into its breast, and you lie there in the growing sunshine almost as if you were a child laid in the lap of one of them. That legend of the singing at dawn of the vocal memnon How could it have arisen? How could such calmness, sing, such patience, ever find a voice? Unlike the Sphinx, which becomes ever more impressive as you draw near to it, and is most impressive when you sit almost at its feet, the Colossi lose in personality as you approach them, and can see how they have been defaced. From afar one feels their minds, their strange, unearthly temperaments commanding this pastoral. When you are beside them this feeling disappears their features are gone and though in their attitudes there is power there is something that awakens awe they are more wonderful as a far-off feature of the plain they gain in grandeur from the night in strangeness from the moonrise perhaps specially when the nile comes to their feet more than three thousand years old they look less eternal than the sphinx like them the sphinx is waiting but with a greater purpose the Sphinx reduces man really to nothingness. The Colossi leave him some remnant of individuality. One can conceive of Strabo, and Alias Gallus, of Hadrian and Sabina, of others who have come over the sunlit land to hear the unearthly song in the dawn, being of some, not much but still of some, importance here. Before the Sphinx no one is important. But in the distance of the plain the Colossi shed a real magic of calm and solemn personality, and subtly seemed to mingle their spirit with the flat green world, so wide, so still, so fecund, and so peaceful, with the soft airs that are surely scented with an eternal springtime, and with the light that the morning rains down on wheat and clover, on Indian corn and barley, and on brown men laboring who, perhaps from the patience of the Colossi in repose, have drawn a patience in labor that has in it something not less sublime. From the Colossi, one goes onward toward the trees and the mountains, and very soon one comes to the edge of that strange and fascinating strip of barren land, which is strewn with temples and honeycombed with tombs. The sun burns down on it. The heat seems thrown back upon it by the wall of tawny mountains that bounds it on the west. It is dusty, it is arid, it is haunted by swarms of flies, by the guardians of the ruins, and by men and boys trying to sell enormous scarabs and necklaces and amulets made yesterday and the day before in the manufactory of kurna from many points it looks not unlike a strangely prolonged rubbish-heap in which busy giants have been digging with huge spades, making mounds and pits, caverns and trenches, piling up here a monstrous heap of stones, casting down there a mighty statue. But how it fascinates! Of course one knows what it means. One knows that on this strip of land Neville dug out at Deir el-Bahari, the temple of Mantuhotep, and discovered later in her shrine, Hathor, the cow-goddess, with the lotus plants streaming from her sacred forehead to her feet, that long before him Mariette here brought to the light at draw Abu Lanegha the treasures of kings of the twelfth and thirteenth dynasties, that at the foot of those tiger-colored precipices Theodore M. Davis, the American, found the sepulchre of Queen Hatshepsut, the Queen Elizabeth of the old Egyptian world, and later the tomb of Ua and Thua, the parents of Queen Ti, containing mummy-cases covered with gold, jars of oil and wine, gold, silver, and alabaster boxes a bed decorated with gilded ivory, a chair with gilded plaster reliefs, chairs of state and a chariot, that here Maspero, Victor Loret, Brugsch Bey, and other patient workers gave to the world tombs that had been hidden and unknown for centuries, that there to the north is the temple of Kurna, and over there the Ramesseum, that those rows of little pillars close under the mountain, and looking strangely modern, are the pillars of Hatshepsut's temple, which bears upon its walls the pictures of the expedition to the historic land of Punt, that the kings were buried there, and there the queens and princes of the vanished dynasties, so that beyond to the west is the temple of Deir el-Medinet, with its judgment of the dead, that here by the native village is Medinet Abu. One knows that, and so the imagination is awake ready to paint the lily and to gild the beaten gold. But even if one did not know, I think one would be fascinated. This turmoil of sun-baked earth and rock, gray, yellow, pink, orange, and red, awakens the curiosity, summons the love of the strange, suggests that it holds secrets to charm the souls of men. End of section 10.